Good evening, and welcome to the Writer's Block. I'm your host, John Ronan, and as you know now, because we are well into our 30th season, I interview writers about their texts, what they've accomplished, what they're selling right now, what they're planning for the future. They might be poets, they might be journalists, they might be other brands of writers, writers indeed, other brands of artists. We have had on sculptors, musicians, actors, it's a pretty wide net. So if you have an idea for an artist who might be good for the writer's block, a poet or other brand of artist, watch for our address at the end of the show. We'd love to get your suggestions. I also want to point out that the writer's block and all the other original programming that comes out of Studio 1623 is a result of cable television. Don't be tempted to get DISH or any of those other access uh, networks that give you all sorts of stations, but cut out the local programming and the local programming option. Stick with the writer's block. Tonight, I am very happy to say we do have a writer. He is a birder by the name of John Nelson. Uh, he was on the show once uh, more than a few years ago because he's been writing for a long time. But since that first visit, he has picked up the habit and the, uh, the, the joy of being an amateur ornithologist. He is going to be talking about flight calls, exploring Massachusetts through birds. I'm going to hold that up so that you can get a good look at it. Flight calls, exploring Massachusetts through birds a very readable, smooth, informative book about our neighborhood and our, and our state with a lot of local references. John Nelson, thanks for being with us on the Writer's Block. Thank you, John. I'm Pleasure to be here. Down. Uh, I mentioned before we went on, I was going to read a couple lines from your intro so that uh, our audience gets a better feel for who you are. Uh, you have written extensively about birds in literary and birding magazines. Your essay, Funny Bird Sex, from the Antioch Review, was awarded a 2018 Pushcart Prize. You're a graduate of Harvard and the University of Illinois, and now are, is a professor emeritus at North Shore Community College. We taught together for many, many decades. Indeed we did. Uh, and the author of the book, Cultivating Judgment, Teaching Critical Thinking Across the Curriculum. You live with your wife, Mary here in Gloucester. This is a very readable book, as I mentioned. It's, it's, Thank uh, you. It's a, nice, uh, it's a nice introduction to birds for people who aren't necessarily birders. Where did you get this idea? And I'm leading into the first chapter where you explain that, but maybe you could say it out loud and then maybe read a section here. Okay, well, I certainly uh, didn't set out to become either a birder or a writer about birds. Um, I've had literary aspirations for some time, uh, mostly in fiction. And I still have fiction aspirations, but uh, <clears throat> I wasn't really interested in birds until I was about 50 or so. Uh, I played sports, then I accumulated a lot of orthopedic insults. I turned to bike riding. I saw some birds that I thought were astonishing around Cape Ann. 
And after doing that for a few years, uh, I wrote an essay about birds for Bird Observer, which is a, a regional magazine for New England. Um, and that led to more. And then I kind of moved on to writing essays for literary magazines. Uh, so this book is about half totally new material and about half essays that have usually been quite revised from essays in literary and birding magazines. When you started out, you said you saw a lot of amazing birds right here in Cape Ann. Right. Give me a couple of examples of birds that first impressed you. Uh, well, what I mentioned in the book, um, some birders sometimes call these spark birds, birds that sort of set your imagination on fire about birds. But one is a glossy ibis, uh, which is common uh, in spring and summer around Cape Ann uh, in marshlands. Would you say that name again? It's glossy ibis. Glossy ibis. So it's related to other ibises around the world, but it's uh, a, a large bird, iridescent, kind of deep red and green with a long hook bill. And, uh, you know, it's one of those birds that looks very prehistoric and looks like it should be like in pterosaur, uh, <laughs> Nubia or somewhere, not Gloucester. So that was one for sure. Uh, another is little blue heron, which is kind of related, um, which is uh, uncommon, but annual around here. Um, there's actually a pond in Braced Bray Street in West Gloucester, people go to look for them, and that's just a stunning bird. And and then, you know, just riding along, I'd see small, lively birds fly-catching for perches, and kind of went from there. You mentioned in your dedication, which is a very touching dedication uh, to your wife, that this is for Mary, hummingbird of my heart. She is. And she is. <laughs> she is. Hummingbirds are quite common too, aren't they? Here. Yes. Um, they uh, they don't spend winters here, but they come here in spring. They breed. There's really just one hummingbird species in eastern North America, ruby-throated hummingbird. So if people put out hummingbird feeders, they'll often come to those. So um, <clears throat> they've, except for a few stragglers, they've migrated back towards uh, South America or Central America. Um, they migrate how many thousand miles? Uh, a couple thousand anyway, and they can fly nonstop uh, over the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, that's one of the astonishing things about the bird world is uh, just the tremendous distances that uh, these small birds will fly and migrate. How do those little bodies store up so much energy? Right. They have to eat a lot. <laughs> Constantly. I don't feed them, so I don't see them often, but I see three or four a year. And I've been visiting people's homes who purposely plant and, f and put feeders out, and they're all over. Well, uh, <coughs> part of the story behind that dedication is Mary is the gardener in our family, and she does indeed uh, <coughs> plant flowers that will attract hummingbirds, but we also put out hummingbird feeders. So you see a lot of them? We do. And it's just one species? Uh, it's just one species anywhere in this area. I mean, occasionally other hummingbirds uh, will show up in Massachusetts and birders will go chasing after them. Sometimes they show up at people's houses at feeders in winter, uh, but that's... In the winter? Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably the best time to see rare birds in Massachusetts is November. Uh, a lot of them are birds that have just wandered out of their usual range. 
or uh, <coughs> are, as some, some people say, directionally challenged. They got lost. They took a wrong, wrong turn somewhere. So, are they out, uh, out of range uh, sometimes because of warming? Um, that's a complicated question. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that about hummingbirds that show up here. I, I don't think it's the case for vagrant birds, birds that are way out of their range. Um, but there are some birds whose ranges are moving, um, southern birds that are moving north, uh, and climate change is one factor in that. It's not the only factor. Um, there are birds, and some birds are in trouble because there's nowhere to go to. There's a bird that used to breed in Massachusetts called the Bicknell's thrush. That the what kind of thrush? It's called Bicknell's thrush. Bicknell's. B-E-I-C-K-N-E-L-L. -L. Named after the individual who first described it. Uh, yeah, I mean, Probably. named after an individual. but. Yeah. You know, they breed uh, pretty high up in mountains in New England, um, and they're moving higher up the mountains uh, to find the habitat they need. Um, be, and climate change is a factor, and the habitat's changing, and there's worry that they're going to run out of space. Run out of mountains. They're going to run out of mountains. So, you know, some birds, uh, well, um, I think the, the description of how you got involved with birding is very, uh, is, is kind of moving. And I'd like you, if you could, could uh, pick out uh, something from the initial chapter about your, your conversion, really. Uh, I certainly... Uh, I enjoy watching birds, but I've never made that jump uh, that you make, uh, that you made and make sound very uh, uh Well, I have a paragraph attractive. in mind I can read. Okay, please. The, tell, um, tell me where you're going to start. Uh, this is on page five, um, and its first chapter is about kind of my initial interest in birds and how that had expanded into interest uh, not only in watching birds and their behavior, but the science of birds, and then how birds have appeared in literature. Um, but this, as far as, I guess, how birding changed me, this, this paragraph captures some of it. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, kind of early in my birding career. Meanwhile, something was happening to me. So intent was I on not missing a bird, I'd slipped into the habit of absorption. The amorphous world had grown more precise. Ornithologist Richard Froome says in The Evolution of Beauty that birdwatching might be among the very first functions of mind, since, like face recognition, it trains our birds to, quote, transform a stream of natural history perceptions into encounters with identifiable individuals. In pre-birding days, trips with Mary, birds had sometimes caught our attention. White storks commanding a Spanish bell tower, a dizzy banana quit sampling liqueurs at a Caribbean beachside bar, a shearwater of some sort skimming the waves and keeping time with our catamaran between Crete and Santorini. But I couldn't remember a single bird from our treks along the Anchor Trail or the Cliffs of Mower. What the hell had we been looking at? What weren't we hearing? Now I was alert to signifying movements all around attuned to sounds, and I describe yeah, very various nice. sounds. I, like, I love those uh, exotic references 
the Cliffs of Moher and a, a dizzy banana quit, uh, uh, and which made me want to emphasize again that this is about birds of Massachusetts. It's it very, is. very readable for people who live here because even if you're not a birder, you recognize the birds, the descriptions, because, oh, I've seen that bird. I mean, Mary and I have traveled a lot, and we traveled a lot before we were birders, and we've taken birding tours uh, in many places of the world. Mary's kind of burnt out on hardcore birding tours, but this is a book about Massachusetts birds, and uh, as I say later, you know, part of kind of the first stage is just being struck by the beauty or the strangeness of birds. Uh, but I think if you get serious, the next step is becoming fascinated by their behavior. Um, and I think a big step for me was the Breeding Bird Atlas, which is a citizen science project to document which birds are breeding in an area, in this case. Now you, you talk about how you do that in here. You had a couple patches to, uh, to uh, record. Right. So explain that a little bit more. How you, if, if you're part of the Atlas program, what do you do? Well, the state is divided into areas, um, and kind of the colloquial term is a patch for your, you know, basically your own neighborhood, a place you bird regularly. Uh, so it's a somewhat complicated system, but the idea is to find proof that different species are breeding. Um, it could be seeing them feed fledglings, it could be carrying away fecal sacs so that predators you know, won't know that birds are around. So uh, it's different, totally different from just kind of chasing to find new birds. It's, it's not just counting. It's not just counting. Although you, I'm sure there's a whole kind of scale of confirmed as breeding, probable breeding. So if you see a bird in the same place uh, singing kind of every week um, during breeding period, that's probable breeding, but it's not proof that it's breeding. Uh -huh. So I don't want to get too far into the science of it, but it's a whole, this is, you know, I'm seeing birds are already new. I didn't see any new birds doing this project. I'm just watching birds. And that is what really immersed me in the behavior of birds. The, the, the Atlas. The uh, Atlas project, involved. which was the, a five-year project for Mass Audubon. Uh, to the Audubon societies in the United States and maybe other ornithological organizations have the country pretty much covered in terms of atlas registration and observation? Well, it's done at the state level, so there's no kind of overriding national body, but most states by this point have had breeding bird atlases. Massachusetts had the first state breeding bird atlas, so the one I did, which was uh, it ended about six years ago, seven years ago, was the second Massachusetts Breeding Bird Atlas. Uh, there's also, which I mentioned in the book, uh, what's called a Christmas bird count, which isn't on Christmas Day, but during December, and that's international. Um, and that's run nationally by National Audubon. There you're just counting birds. You're counting every bird you see or hear. Um, you're not looking it's done at a time when birds aren't migrating, they're not breeding, so it's got a different purpose. But it's part of just documentation of what birds are out there, what birds are declining. And the, yeah, well, uh, I want to assert a little question there. How are the numbers doing in general? I know there's hundreds and hundreds of species. I know it's a difficult question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, I mean, there was just a report that got a lot of publicity about major declines of birds overall 
in North America and the world. So, I mean, big picture is that many, many, there's roughly 10,000 species of birds in the world. Many of those species are in serious trouble. Um, climate change is a factor, but loss of habitat is the main factor. So the last chapter of my book talks about kind of the birds of the future in Massachusetts and conservation, and it varies a lot. Some birds can adapt to urban environments. Um, they can adapt their songs. Uh, they can adapt to the noise. They can adapt to changes in light. Uh, other birds can't adapt. You see hawks in big cities. Right. Uh, their per peregrine falcons were you know, in serious trouble because of pesticides. Rachel Carson's book was a major influence in her recovery. Now in, they're in City Hall in Gloucester in winter. Um, they're in the Customs House in Boston. Um, so some birds can adapt. But, you know, the big picture is, is not good. Um, and as I say, habitat, loss of habitat is a major factor, but there are many others. Pesticides are still used widely in this country and in the world. Uh, cats, uh, house cats and right field cats kill cats huge numbers of birds. Billions, I think, in the, uh, per year in yes. the United States. Collisions with buildings. Uh, Mass Audubon's doing a study now of collisions, bird collisions with buildings in Boston. And collisions with houses, too. I think I sent you an e a, uh, by email a picture of a bird who crashed in, evidently crashed into our front door. Right. And it's perfectly fine to, to look at, perfectly visibly fine bird lying there at the stoop and just gorgeous, Yeah. gorgeous bird. Yeah, I mean, there are, for a private residence, you can put up decals and other things can deter that, not prevent it entirely. But uh, huge side skyscrapers are a much bigger problem. I mean, I went to a, uh, trustees convention in Dallas and took a break in the morning and walked around and found 30 bird corpses in about five minutes. Around the big building the, where you were The meeting. circumference of this, which was just the big building with all glass, glass. so when bird, birds fly they see sky reflecting sky. They think they're just flying through the sky and then they hit a surface. So. One of the uh, more moving events I had this summer uh, was looking up from my desk and seeing at the other side of the window right in front of me a hummingbird staring back at me. Static for about three or four seconds. Felt like a long time, but it, I, 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 it just disappeared, you know, the, the way they do because they're so quick. But it, evidently it might have seen itself. I don't think it was looking at me. It might have seen itself or found itself interested for some reason. It could be. I mean, a lot of birding is, you know, moments, brief encounters, just glimpses. Yeah. Uh, one chapter I, I write a lot about Emily Dickinson's poems, and I think she wrote a lot about birds and not kind of as a birder concerned about identifying species, but just the feelings evoked in her by these brief encounters, just a bird flying by kind of Bird. I can't get over the fact of flight. It's just the hummingbirds sitting there static. No, it's it's an amazing feat, <laughs> far behind human capabilities. I, I, I can't believe the planes I watch going over. Um, I, uh, I want to stress that this is a local book, a regional book. 
And I'd like to ask you to talk about one special chapter that uh, uses a strange name that will be familiar to many of our watchers, but no one outside of Gloucester. Watching Gulls with Emerson on Cape Tragabigzanda. Would you explain what Cape Trabagixanda is and, and talk about this chapter a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, this book does have, well, I mean, the whole book is about Massachusetts, but uh, I'm from Cape Ann. Two of the chapters are entirely about Cape Ann. So Cape Tragabixanda uh, is a name from Cape Ann that came from Captain John Smith, uh, who was actually the first Englishman to put together a list of birds. Uh, the first to really map our Cape, so he's a complex character, but he had, uh, his story is that he was saved by a Turkish princess, Dragobidzanda, and that he named uh, this Cape after her. There's still a little road in Gloucester with that name, <laughs> but uh, I forget, I think it's King Charles, but whoever was king considered this too barbarous a name for one of his so-called possessions. I'm quite happy he did change it. So he <laughs> named it, I think, after his mother. Uh, so it became Cape Ann. But, you know, John Smith figures in that chapter. Um, you know, he's kind of, he didn't come here to look for birds. He, he was interested in timber and fish and kind of the economic possibilities for Cape Ann. Claiming things for the crown. Yes. Um, but, you know, he was observant. He recorded birds. Sometimes his, uh, he admits he didn't know a lot of what he was looking at. Um, so this, uh, this chapter is a birding tour of Cape Ann and a writer's tour of Cape Ann at the and same time. This is so, the one in which you mentioned Elliot. Yes. So I kind of take the reader like we're part of a birding tour group um, and we go from hot birding hotspot to hotspot. And Cape Ann is uh, especially known for winter birdings. People come here to see seabirds in winter. So kind of each place has its own writers associated with. So there's a <coughs> lot of gulls at the fish pier in Gloucester. And, you know, I, part of the fun of this was, uh, you know, people you wouldn't expect to write about birds did, like Anne Sexton described uh, in several poems, The Gulls of Gloucester. And there's a section about uh, Eastern Point and T.S. Eliot spent summers just off Eastern Point with his family. And, uh, and, I, and long summers, I think they were here for, he, he came here for around 15 years uh, for three or four months a year. So it was not just a two week vacation. Right. <clears throat> and this is where he really became enthusiastic about birds for uh, one of his birthdays. His parents gave him Frank Chapman's Bird Guide, which was a popular guide at the time. And the birds he describes, he actually wrote a poem called Cape Ann, which is entirely about birds. And it just describes the birds you would encounter around Eastern Point. And then uh, the tour keeps going with... Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, at what's called Cathedral Ledge in Rockport, which is a popular winter sea watching place and where Emerson stayed when he lectured in Gloucester. Uh, and it kind of comes together with the dry selvages, the rocks off Rockport, which uh, are the subject of a famous poem by Eliot, part of the four quartets. Of, one of the four quartets. Um, 
But, and I also mentioned some painters, um, not so much bird painters, but Winslow Homer, who's the subject of a current exhibit at the Cape Ann Museum, uh, Fitzhenry Lane, and you know the uh, dry selvages, which Elliot describes, and there's gulls flying around. Uh, Emerson from the, what's now the Emerson Inn, could have seen them and seen gulls flying around. Uh, Fitzhenry Lane and Winslow Homer both painted storms in that area. So that kind of, all the writers and painters mentioned in that chapter come together. I think, yeah, I think that interested me because I live here, of course, and I want to stress to our audience that this is a book about the area they're familiar with. So it makes sense on that level immediately. It's not descriptions of beautiful birds in Peru, for instance, that they might never see. Right. And also, there's enough cross-referencing so that there's literary in interest, there's touring interest, there's uh, 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 at one point, there's a little bit of scandalous interest. Uh, I'm not going to remember. I'll let that be a tease for our audience. Okay. Scandalous interest. <laughs> well, I think the, in the chapter in Cape Ann especially, um, you know, we live, this is what brought me here. Uh, I was, I got hired at North Shore Community College. I was living in Boston and I decided it was foolish to commute out. So I didn't really know this area. Uh, I drove around looking for a place to live. And, you know, I was attracted by the natural beauty of Gloucester. And that includes birds as well as landscapes. But the more I lived here, I became fascinated with its cultural history, and I think it's a rare place that offers you know, great natural and cultural history, and that chapter tries to bring the two together. Uh, there's another chapter which mentions another uh, important uh, cultural uh, event, uh, part of our cultural history. Have you explain the Bill Buckner joke? Oh, <laughs> the... Um, I think that was a Harris Sparrow that was early in my birding career and we were at Plum Island and it's a kind of, it's a section and I, I guess yeah, I'd yes, emphasize, Sparrow, yes. there's, um, you know, birding is something we do for pleasure. So it's a fairly lighthearted book, you know, there's parts of it that are dark, the kind of prospects for birds, but, um, and often chasing rare birds, you come up short. You never see the bird at all, or you get this momentary, not satisfying glimpse of some skulking bird. And I'd never seen a Harris Sparrow, and I, there was one reported at the Parker River Refuge. So I went, and there were, I don't know, 20 birders or so. Uh, and this bird not only came in the, out in the open, uh, but it walked right through somebody's legs. Um, and somebody dubbed it the Bill Buckner Bird from Bill Poor Buckner's, Bill. yeah. For, I mean, that, that, that's so famous, I don't have to explain it, the right. Buckner error. Although they never would have gotten to the series without Bill Buckner, so for the whole season, I think. Yeah, know, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to get in a lick at Buckner's expense because uh, you know, he was an excellent baseball player who unfortunately will always be yeah, associated that is with that one bad moment. But we are almost out of time. I'm watching the clock. Okay. Uh, can you say two sentences, if you would, on the chapter titled The Birding John Nelsons? Just explain that title, if you would. Well, there's 
two other, maybe more, but two other John Nelson birders in Massachusetts that I know of. So it's a comic chapter about uh, confusion uh, between the two of us. Um, when we first, I met one of them, the other I never met. Uh, and I kind of play with the idea of rare birds and the other John Nelson's a very nice guy, an excellent birder, and early on in my career, uh, I made some blunders and identifications that I would later think of him sitting at his computer, not wanting to be associated with this <laughs> fool John Nelson who was who was out there. So it's yeah, it's kind it's of a good, it's a it's common a good, name. Good chapter, comic comic chapter. I'm going to hold the book up again as. Uh, just before we close here, this is John Nelson's book, Flights, Flight Calls, Exploring Massachusetts Through Birds. And I can recommend it. John, thank you very much for being with us thank on the you. Writer's Block. It's been a pleasure. If you out there in television land and cable land have learned something about John Nelson's background and his book on Massachusetts birds, then the writer's block has done its job. Thanks for being with us, and I hope to see you again next week on the writer's block. Good night.